Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. My name is Lindsay Solatar and I'm a first year student here at MIT Sloan. And I'm pleased to introduce our next panel, Save the Data, the Future of Technology and Data. On our panel this afternoon, we have Shelly Pissara, EVP of Strategy, Strategy and Insights at Wasserman, Matt Smith, SVP of CRM at Fanatics, Kat Frederick, Chief Marketing Officer of Ticketmaster, and our moderator will be Kelly Ungerman, a senior partner at McKinsey & Company. The panel itself will last for 45 minutes, and we will leave 10 minutes at the end for Q&A. If you have a question you would like to ask, please submit it on Twitter using the hashtag SaveTheData. Thank you, and with that, I will turn it over to Kelly. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, I just realized we have Kelly, Shelley, Matt, and Kat, and um, it's, it's Dr. Seuss week at my kids' school, so I, I figured that's sort of, a, sort of appropriate. Um, but uh, thank you very much for, uh, for having us, and uh, we will uh, continue with many of the data and technology-driven uh, transformation themes of the day. Um, I'll just give a little bit of context for the panel, and then, uh, like the other ones, we will walk through some questions, um, and please do feel free to, uh, to chime in with your own questions as well. Um, so just as uh, broader context, as you all know, right, technology, you know, has fundamentally transformed how sports and entertainment organizations are engaging with their fans. And there's no question the, the tools, the technology, you know, new test and learn uh, approaches are making the promise of personalization, which companies have been talking about for decades, um, you know, truly a reality. Uh, one stat that I find staggering is, you know, 90% of the data on the internet has been created in the last two years, which is mm. a hard fact to just even, even wrap your head around. Um, so today with the uh, panelists, we'll explore how they're harnessing the power of that data uh, to deliver better, uh, better satisfaction, but also more engaging experiences with their, uh, with their fans and consumers. So what's working, what some of the challenges are. These are long, um, tough slugs and hard transformations over many, many years. And every company that goes through them certainly has a lot of um, you know, hits and, and some misses, uh, misses along the way. Um, we'll also touch on uh, some of the data privacy laws, um, and most notably California's uh, Data Privacy Act, which uh, is going into effect this year, and how some of the panelists are, uh, are responding, uh, responding to that. Um, so with that, would love for, um, for each of you, and we'll start with um, Shelley, just to, to briefly introduce yourself and talk about how you're leveraging technology and uh, the data that is being unlocked uh, through that to engage with your fans and consumers. Um, just a little bit of a, a, br a brief overview. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you, Kelly. Um, thank you, everybody. Glad you could come out and spend a little time with us. I'm Shelley Pissara. I lead um, Insights and Strategy as um, was introduced at Wasserman, and I've been there about four years. I think we all have just been talking about kind of this common four to five year run um, at our organizations because it takes a long time to build things. Um, and at Wasserman, we really are working on behalf of our clients, on behalf of our athletes that we represent, the 400 brands that we work with each and every year, and um, the partnerships that they build with the amazing properties around the world across sports and entertainment. So with that said, what we're doing with data and technology is really about empowering our ability to help them. And um, Elizabeth Lindsay, our president of the Brands and Properties Division, always talks about this mantra. And it was actually one of the things that attracted me to Wasserman, which is 
there, you know, the universe and frankly kind of the world we're working in is drowning in data and starving for insight. And if we keep that at the core of the way we approach the business at Wasserman, then we essentially can stay in our lane and do what's right on behalf of our clients and bring in great partners like a Ticketmaster, like a Fanatics, who are going to be much more on the front lines. So as technology and data has evolved, we really are employing it to, frankly, drive efficiencies, think about answering that next question, focusing on application. So making sure that it's not just, hey, here's more information about something. It's here's what you need to do with it. Here's how you make your next best decision. And frankly, the, the technology enables us to be more efficient and effective where our smart minds, we're still a people business, the smart minds on the teams can now spend more time working with the clients on the application side of things. So first and foremost, that's our priority. And then being able to sprinkle in a little secret sauce um, is definitely something that we like to do along the way. Perfect, Matt. I'm Matt Smith. I lead uh, CRM, uh, Customer Loyalty and Insights for Fanatics. Um, uh, globally. Uh, for those who don't know Fanatics, we refer to ourselves as a v-commerce company or vertically integrated e-commerce uh, company. As you can imagine, data sits at the, at the core of a lot of, uh, a lot of that. We serve um, over 200 brands, uh, sports brands and leagues uh, around the world uh, and tens of millions of customers around the world. So connecting, connecting fans to, uh, to the teams and the players that they're passionate about it really sits at the core of what we try to do with data. Over the last couple of years, we've invested heavily in the core pieces of our businesses, moved most of our major applications up to the cloud, uh, which, lets us, which lets us use data uh, across the organization much more easily. It lets us scale also infinitely. If you can imagine the demand that comes to us you know, after a uh, Super Bowl or World <laughs> Series victory, uh, we have to be able to, uh, to scale uh, dramatically. So um, we're trying to take that, that, that wealth of data that everybody has uh, and, and try to turn it into insight in the form of product recommendations and, um, and, and better communications with customers in, in really units of one to connect them to the teams and the players that they have passion for. Kat. Thanks, Kelly, for having me. Um, uh, and thank you all again for coming. Um, so I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at Ticketmaster. It's been an amazing four and a half year run. Um, just a little bit of color Ticketmaster is a household brand, but uh, I think sometimes folks underestimate our scale. Um, and we move about a half a billion tickets a year, which equates to about 15 tickets a second. So when you think about the challenge around data and technology, we see ourselves as a company that's investing in the future of identity, right? And, and identity at scale. Um, and so with 300 million global consumers, um, we have to serve them in a way that's very, very distant from the old spray and pray. Um, and so as we think about how we super serve our best customers, how we super serve mm -hmm. our customers across a, a very, very large catalog of content, um, data and technology are the key enablers as we think um, from a one-to-one -one communication standpoint. And so we're really excited what um, uh, the data that we're creating off of this identity-based uh, ticketing platform will yield for us to serve our fans even better, but also to be great partners and build great programs across the ecosystem of sports and entertainment. Terrific. So we'd love to talk a little bit about 
how each of you in your businesses are using uh, data and technology to meet the needs and expectations of consumers today and tomorrow as you look kind of where the, the puck is going. And uh, Kat, I'll start with you. And you've, you've described yourself as being uh, obsessed with data. And as a, uh, as a consultant, I can definitely relate, relate to uh, you know, the love of sort of geeking out on a lot of uh, data and analytics. But you talk about it, of course, in the context of how can you use that data to deliver more uh, personalized uh, fan engagement, right? And last year you were quoted as saying it's sort of the combination and in the, in the nirvana of taking, uh, you know, great, con great content, world-class offerings, and elevated, you know, audience science to deliver mm -hmm. those experiences. So how, how do you all do, do that at Ticketmaster? What are some of the tools and technologies behind that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think we recognize the, f the facts that consumer expectations all the way around are shaping expectations mm -hmm. in whatever industry you're in. And so as, as Netflix and Amazon and Uber change the game around what core consumer expectations are, I expect hyper-personalized, I expect mobile, I expect local, and I expect instant. Yep. If I think about that uh, construct, and I think about how we want to serve people in a high-touch way, um, it, be, it it does sit at how does data and technology accelerate that, your ability to serve that. It used to be okay to spray and pray. It used to be okay to say, I have a commercial agenda, I'm gonna just shout it from the rooftops. And instead, I think it's a reorientation, you know, because we're unlocking identity, it does sit at what consumer journey are you going to interact with and how are you gonna help shape um, what consumers wanna pull from a value from their orientation. So mm -hmm. it's what consumers want. How do you serve it? Uh, what does that mean as they're thinking about, as, as, as we think about how we inspire fans to unlock memories they don't know they yet want, right. um, to the actual ticket buying experience, to the lead up to the event. There's a lots of moments of inspiration. And I think unpacking those down at a granular level through segmentation, through um, the, the world of technology options um, allows us to serve that in an omni-channel way, uh, increasingly better with more data. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love that you talk about omni-channel. I, I grew up as a uh, in in retail, <laughs> and so the fact that um, other other sectors, including entertainment, are now using omni-channel, I think, is uh, is terrific. Matt's, um, uh, let's talk about uh, fanatics. On the one hand, fanatics is obviously a retailer who specializes in selling product and merchandise for um, you know pro and college teams, right? Um, but you've often been described as very much uh, uh, you know a, a technology-driven and analytics-forward company, right? And you know almost in uh, an equal equal footing. Um, and given the products that you're selling and the experiences that you're trying to create, this kind of doing it in the heat of the moment is critical, right? Whether that's after a big game or leading you know after a big win, leading up to a big game. So how do you think about creating you know, that uh, data set that combines event data, consumer, and other data to be able to be in the moment when you need uh, when you need to be? And then how do you think about what data matters in a world of, I'm sure your data set has you know, hundreds, if not thousands of variables in it. How do you sort out what really matters? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you know, that if, you, if you look around the room or you, you look across a group of people, um, and you ask them about their, their, uh, the teams that they're passionate about, mm -hmm. um, I think what you'll quickly see is we all have very unique fan totems, right? We, uh, we all have different reasons that we follow different players and, and different teams. Um, and, and, and 
it's, it's often not intuitive. Uh, the connections that we have to teams go uh, way back in our past, and sometimes they're multi-generational, sometimes it's because of where we happen to live, sometimes it's just a connection that we have um, with a particular player. So understanding, uh, understanding uh, preferences at that level of grain, at the, at the grain of an individual customer is really important for us. Um, we, we, you know, years ago, Visions of Good would have been, I know that you're a Celtics fan and I can orient you towards Celtics product. And if I know that you happen to be uh, a jersey buyer versus a t-shirt buyer, I could sort a page and show you more jerseys than I would show you t-shirts. Vision of Good now is um, ingesting, uh, ingesting sports feed data uh, so that we can pre-build templates uh, that fire off to consumers who happen to be Celtics fans after they win a, a, a big game, mm -hmm. um, or celebrating the performance of a player on court, uh, and, and actually firing off, uh, firing off communications to those fans who have passion for that player, recognizing that they had a, that they had a, uh, uh, a great moment the, the night before, and those fans want to celebrate that. They want to, mm -hmm. they want to express it. Um, and a vision of good uh, going forward, if you think about us as a, as a e-commerce company, is not just being able to see the demand as it's, as it's happening in the market, but to actually be able to connect our manufacturing processes and our design processes to that as well, to be able to produce product and push that product up, up to customers mm -hmm. that allows them to connect in a deeper way than, than they knew before. So I think as we, as we continue to bring more parts of the organization in together, and, and those parts of the organization are firing off of the same data, it puts us in a position of being able to, to better serve each individual customer based upon what their own individual connections are to teams. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's a really important point, right? It's not just data for a limited uh, uh, set of use cases, but ultimately how do you unleash the power of the data to drive value across the entire business system, right? And how, how are you, say a little bit more about mm -hmm. how you're doing that. What are some of the processes you're using to sort of connect the insights from what you're learning back, you know, upstream, whether it's demand planning or manufacturing or product development? So there's a, there's a couple of things. One, um, I, you know, you can, t you can take a look at an at a individual uh, product that we would sell. Take a look at a LeBron James jersey. A uh, customer goes out and buys a LeBron James Lakers jersey. It's interesting. They're probably a LeBron James fan. They're maybe a Lakers fan. And then when you understand that customer's behavior, you realize they also brought a, Le brought a LeBron jersey when he was with the Cavs and mm -hmm. when he was with Miami. So this is clearly a, a consumer who has passion for LeBron James. So now you can think about mm -hmm. the positioning of, of how we want to talk about that gear and what other gear that, that consumer could potentially be interested in, whether it's memorabilia or or other LeBron types of products. If, if LeBron uh, has, and I'm sure he will, have continued to have great <laughs> milestones, um, and we have the opportunity to produce product that, that specifically focuses on some of those achievements, we know that those customers want to be able to celebrate the mm -hmm. success with him. Um, and, and so you, you know, you'll, you'll see us produce, uh, produce designs of, of product and be able to offer it up on the website and then connect customers through our marketing channels yeah. uh, with those. That's awesome. I, I want to build on something, kind of the combination of the two things you said. Kat, you actually mentioned this idea of providing your consumers with experiences or memories they don't even know they want to make yet. And there's something so great and wonderful about that. And here, you're a part of that instantaneously after there's a big mm -hmm. event, right? And one of the things we really focus on is really driving that value back to brands to understand then, wow, what an amazing way for me to reach my consumer 
and to come in alongside them and actually develop a different relationship with them than maybe the healthcare service I typically provide or the product that I sell at retail or whatever that might be, that now takes that relationship to a new level because you're tapping into a passion. Right. And you're now relevant in their lives in a, in a very different way. So we're taking all of that and thinking about now let's overlay it with our clients' information and really say we have a more holistic view separate from what's happening day in and day out. And now we can show you that actually through this partnership or this relationship, this may be your best avenue in. Yeah. And guess what? That's going to translate into brand love of some sort that you wouldn't be able to necessarily get on your own. Maybe. Yep. You're still doing great work. Your product has to deliver. All of that has to happen. But finding these ways to have that 360 view of a consumer really gives us that chance to show brands a new way in, given all of the things you talked about, the personalization, the on-demand, the fragmentation right. of the marketplace. So it kind of comes full circle back to Really, at the end of the day, we need to understand our consumer and what, what they really are looking for. And, and, the, and the nuances are incredibly um, important, right? Just because yeah. someone went to see Hannah Montana or Disney on Ice does not mean that that's going to be their affinity <laughs> for life, right? Like Maybe she, not even taste, for the next Their month. taste graduate. <laughs> Maybe their daughter's Whereas, affinity, not their affinity. <laughs> exactly. Whereas, um, you know, and, and, and the data that you have, you have to understand it, right? right? Because... For, for, our, for the Ticketmaster use case, we have all of this purchase data. Where the identity unlock really becomes profound is when you marry the behavioral data yep. with the purchase data, with the actual tr transfer and, and, and chain of custody of that ticket through to entry, you really bet, better understand the neural networks between the relationships mm -hmm. of people, how they're interested, um, and then begin to serve them what they actually care about. And, yep. and to your point, it's, it's really understanding the passion that allows you to authentically unlock it. Right, that's right. And understanding that there's so much choice out there now for where you spend your time and dollars Looking at like events is no longer enough. Am I Yankees or am I Mets? Nope, it's actually, am I anything on a Saturday, right? right? Just about anything. Right. I'm being a and little it, bit absurd. It, and when you look at that, right, um, I think the stats are basically 11% uh, of a household income will go towards entertainment, 10% mm -hmm. of that will go towards live entertainment, mm -hmm. um, and then that subset that you are fighting the war for attention with uh, is bombarded by at minimum 10,000 competing conversations, content, and advertising mm -hmm. every single day. Mm -hmm. So if you don't understand your consumer, you will not cut through. Right. Absolutely. Right, Kat, neural networks, that's a new level of starting <laughs> out. Sorry. <laughs> I'm a nerd. I went to Sloan, so hopefully that helps you're, you're, set the tone for what I think, how I You're, you're in good company. Okay. Um, all right, we're going to switch gears uh, a bit, but just building on what uh, a lot of the points that all of you have been making, I would love to explore the trade-offs between sort of the hyper-personalization of one-on-one -on -one and scale, right? And there are typically five levels of, um, of personalization, the broadcast or, or cat spray and pray, you know, macro segmentation, so three to five big segments, yeah. you know, micro segmentation, dozens, one-to-one, -one, and then dynamic one-to-one, -one, where it's not only in the moment, but it's also dynamic and you're predicting what they want. Um, and many companies think of one-to-one -one and dynamic one-to-one -one as sort of the holy grail of personalization. 
Um, would love to hear from all of you where you are in that journey, where you are today, um, where you are trying to get to, and when is one-on-one -on -one necessary, and when is something less than that um, good enough? And uh, Shelly, let's start with you, and then we'll come back to Kat. Sure, sure. So it's a little bit different for us. We're not dealing with one-to-one -one or yeah. um, individual information. We're dealing with it in groups and keeping it anonymized. So, um, but principally speaking, um, it really depends on the objective and, and what you actually want from that consumer or that group of consumers to determine if that one-to-one -one personalization is needed. If it's about, I want you to buy a very specific product because I know, and this is harkening back to my PepsiCo days a little bit, I know exactly the life stage your family is in and you're going to be in Doritos with us for much longer. I may have a very specific offer for the Kroger up the street that just goes to you. Um, but if we're actually looking at driving interest around a social event or thinking about putting multiple events together, so a particular genre of music and a sporting event and creating a larger event, I likely don't need to know um, individual level information, that consumer profile, the target that the brand and the events are going after with some great information about the most likely things they care about will be enough to get them there. And we're just looking, with that, looking for that association, maybe a tick up in perception and so on. So I would stay higher funnel at that point. Um, so again, it kind of goes back to the objectives and then knowing when you want them to take a very specific action, um, what exactly you need from them and what you need to know about them to make that happen. Yep. So that's how we think about it. And then we'll work with our partners if there is personalized data that they want us to use or incorporate, we can build a model and append it to their data set, and they're off and running. If not, then we'll help them create those three to five bigger segments, understand everything about them, and you know, kind of send them on their way a little bit higher up in the yeah. funnel. I thought your point earlier, too, when you, in your uh, PepsiCo days, when you were talking about you guys had, a, over a period of time, a huge distortion, right, from traditional yeah. to digital, and it became yeah, so, so hyper- uh, so, you know, lower funnel, right, you almost yeah. lost, the, lost the plot on upper funnel, you lost the awareness and some of the scale that's almost impossible to replace with, with hyper. Right? It is, and you know, I mean, I think, and hopefully you guys agree, I think you will, <laughs> is the idea of maintaining that balance and understanding, you still have to do enough to keep the lights on. So we, yeah. we did a big test in, I guess it was 2013, 2014, where we shifted quite a bit of media over into very, very targeted, personalized digital. And it was a little bit too much. And frankly, we started to see some base sales of 90% plus penetration brands starting to slip a little bit. And you realize that you still have to be talking about them, or there at least has to be a murmur in the marketplace to keep the lights on while you're figuring out how to get to scaled personalization, right? Which now seems, oh, everybody does that. Well, in 2012, 2013, that wasn't quite the case. So we had to do a little bit of backtracking and back up and say, all right, so to drive the core business, we need to make sure we're spending at this higher level. And then we'll come back and we'll really identify what would now be almost super influencers or big circles to go out and say, we're going we're to go after them at a very specific one-to-one -one level and then let them spread the word for us. Yep. So that is a bit of the evolution that we saw over time. But right. you're not going to know if you don't test and learn. And we took a big risk. And... Eventually it worked out, but we had a lot of learnings along the way. Yeah. So testing and learning. So we're going to shift from the sort of here and now of experiences that you're delivering today to um, experiences that you are hoping to deliver tomorrow. 
Um, and you know, as you all know, uh, expectations move at the pace of technology. They also move at the pace of you know, other competitors, whether those are in or inside or outside your, your industry. Um, and what might be unique and differentiated today, frankly, six months, 12 months from now, uh, might be table stakes, right? So a lot of companies will say, my internal metabolic rate of change needs to exceed my, uh, the external metabolic rate of change to, to stay ahead, right? So how do we keep staying on the leading, uh, uh, even not even bleeding, but at least, uh, at least leading edge? Um, uh, Matt, would love to hear a little bit from you about uh, how you think about getting your organization aligned to go where the, you know, to head where the puck is going, um, and the sort of requisite investments to go there, right? Especially when you may not have the case law or the ROI is a bit unproven. Yeah, I, it, for for us, getting the organization aligned there is isn't a challenge. I think um, we we uh, tend to orient ourselves that direction anyway. I think there's some key. I think there's some key attributes that drive that though. Um, number one, constantly scanning, uh, constantly mm -hmm. scanning the horizon, looking for, looking inside and outside our, our industries, looking for best practices. And, yeah. and most of the folks that are running capabilities for Fanatics are doing that on a, on a pretty constant basis. That's number one. Number two, uh, we have this mission to serve the customer that really sits at the center of, of everything that we do. So, so all of the capabilities and technologies that we're looking at uh, and thinking about uh, bringing in, we do it with an eye towards whether or not we are serving the customer well. And then three, we have a culture that really encourages uh, contribution and collaboration. Um, mm -hmm. Leaders challenge each other, uh, not from a position of defensiveness or, or aggressiveness, but really from a position of seeking to understand. So we have a very open culture uh, that, is, uh, that is accepting of new ideas, demands new ideas, demands testing and learning, uh, and, and that just baked into the culture. And what that does together, I think, is it, is it creates an environment where we put the, the most number of, of possible good ideas at the center of the mm -hmm. table, yeah. and then are able to have a very thoughtful conversation about which of those ideas we think is most likely to pay off and which is most likely to be, uh, to move the needle on, you know, for serving customers yeah. better and driving a, a positive business outcome. And do you, do you try to have a sort of specific ROI threshold or is it more we want to kind of be in this range and we want to have preserve some for more strategic bets versus ones we know are going to pay off? Yeah, I think you know, we, we, we do do that. There's, there's you know, it, again, if you think about it from a capability perspective, so think about folks that are driving paid marketing or social mm -hmm. uh, CRM, um, uh, other parts of our technology and, and supply chain in the manufacturing world, you kind of have this core infrastructure that you're trying to refine every, every year. You're making the algorithms better yeah. um, uh, to, to drive a return. But you also have, you know, probably not moonshots, but you may have top of the roof shots. Uh, that you're taking where you think there's a pretty good chance that something's going to pay out and there's a pretty direct line towards towards having success. And then uh, capability leaders try to balance those. We have a commitment to, to grow the organization, but we also need next year and the year after good ideas. And we have to start to plant those seeds you know, now in order to, see, in order to get them to pay out a couple, a couple years down the road. Yeah. Shelly or Kat? Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things that we uh, have adopted from McKinsey, quite frankly, is the obligation to dissent. And I think as we think about our business, there are no sacred cows. Um, we, we, we lead um, both in scale and in capabilities as an industry leader, and, and that means that we are constantly sitting at the mm -hmm. leading, bleeding edge of mm -hmm. innovation and, and trying to, to figure out which bets to make. Yeah. Um, and, and I think for us, it, 
the, the, the bigger challenge continues to always be, we have so many great ideas. How do we prioritize? <laughs> How do we focus? How do we narrow the circumference of where we think we can be successful? But that unlocks for our teams a great fertile ground to be creative, right? And so that test and learn culture um, allows us to take some pretty wild, as you said, roof shots, moon shots around what are some of our key hypotheses, mm -hmm. particularly up against the segments and audiences we care about, um, to think incredibly differently. Um, and, that, and that can vary in terms of whether it's just something in this moment and, and it's really ephemeral and now, mm -hmm. or whether it's something that we're thinking about as a you know, foundational bedrock of our programs. Yep. One thing I find with a lot of companies is on path to experiences of tomorrow and a lot of the test and learn that all of you are talking about, um, it's very hard to, for a lot of companies to declare when something's not working, right? And to sunset <laughs> a project, a program, you know, some analytics use case or digital um, that's frankly just not working, that's never going to, or pivot it. How do you have the sort of courage, conviction, or you know, just the, 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 whether it's agile or other processes built in to be able to do that and know when you have to call it? <laughs> We're all like, which one should we think of? Um, well, I think with us, it's it's one of those things where, and I don't I don't think I'd go as far as sacred cows, but I would say. There's a lot of reviewing that we do as we're in market and we're thinking about what makes us different, what makes us valuable to our partners, where we can help, and are we going to be prepared to answer the next question? Yeah. And if we're looking at a roster of products and or we're in the midst of you know, working on a substantial project for someone, the constant review of what's actually contributing that value is underway. Yeah. And it's actually listening to the folks who are down in the work not those of us who are coming in and out of the meetings and, and kind of carrying the water of the relationship, but it's actually those that are creating what's new and next in that particular deliverable. Because we will find there are places where, you know what, this methodology actually isn't going to work this time, and here's why. And if you have a couple of those, then we have to take a step back and say, you know what, guys, we either need to alter this or we need to speed up the what's next or the version 2.0 or 3.0. Um, so it's that constant review and listening to the folks that are always in the work. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I would be remiss to say, it's not like sometimes you aren't limping across the finish line the last few times. You're like, all right, guys, we just got to call it. We have to be done here and move on to what's next. Um, and that's, it's kind of sometimes it's tied to your heritage and your roots where, where those things, those decisions are hard to make. Um, but you have to be listening and reviewing, and it's those folks who are in the work that know really where that value is coming from. Yeah. I think culturally, sorry. I think culturally, if you, if you as an organization can embrace that there is a lot of ignorance, and you have a lot of ignorance, and, and the processes yeah. that you're going to go through are, are really meant to discover, number one. Number two, don't stigmatize failure, right? And, mm -hmm. and so when folks are really comfortable coming forward with failure, um, uh, particularly if it's, if it's failure, you know, because we've learned something versus failure for sloppy work. I think, I think, um, you know, we just have to embrace that and take it and take it as an opportunity. Yeah, I think I think that's spot on. I think Google has mm -hmm. done a very good job of saying, not only let's not stigmatize failure, but let's actually celebrate and embrace it. And by the way, if your failure rate is too low, it probably means you're not you're not trying enough, big enough not bets, right? Being aggressive yeah. enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the other thing I would just add on, and I didn't say this. One of the biggest things we did two years ago was we actually put in a dedicated team that sits within my group that isn't accountable on clients. 
Um, we're building products and capabilities we're selling every day and servicing those clients, but they weren't sitting on a P&L that basically filled up their day with client projects and things like that. So, you know, you're building in cost to the center of the business, but we said if we're going to be looking forward and or hearing rumbles that maybe something isn't working right, there needs to be a dedicated group that can spend time on it, not let it get lost or drop to the bottom because in a client business, people business, your clients always will come first. But setting that group aside and saying we're going to commit this spend to getting this right and thinking about tomorrow um, was one of the biggest things that, I don't know, I guess gave us room to not stigmatize failure, but gave us the chance to actually try some things within safety where we weren't spending anyone else's money. It was ours, and, and we were figuring out how to bring that value. And I, I think the very nature of a test and learn culture, it, once, once we adopted that, failure was part of the process. Mm -hmm. It was part of how we That's learned. Right. And I think um, going in with your hypothesis, what you think mm -hmm. your success criteria is, really takes a lot of the emotion out of failure, which is it didn't meet the criteria, we know we can do better, mm -hmm. go back at it. And so I think that it really is about bringing um, alignment to how you test, how you fail, how you learn. Mm -hmm. We're all basically recovering perfectionists, right? Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Still on the quest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's interesting, I've been doing you know, digital and analytics work in some form for two decades, and uh, the, I grew up with doing mostly retail work for the first 10, 15 years. Um, and of course, Amazon, you know, for more than a decade has been, you know, the competitor that everyone is, has bench, you know, every retailer has uh, benchmarked themselves again. What's interesting to me is now you go outside of retail to telco or tech or media or entertainment and others are actually looking at Amazon and others, right? So this notion of mm -hmm. it's not your direct competitor, it's actually the consumer's last best experience mm -hmm. that is starting to create this sort of new normal and set an expectation. So it is Amazon that has, has taught consumers to expect fast frictionless experience or Amazon or Apple, um, you know, who taught consumers that, you know, you can have, you know, great design and products and apps and services that are all uh, part of this connected ecosystem and talk to each other, right? And so they've raised the uh, expectation. Um, and it's bred this new uh, version of what we call experienced competitors. Um, as you think about you know, your experience competitors, who do you look to for aspiration, uh, inspiration? And uh, Kat, I'll start with you. I think in, in our industry, um, I, I, I'm often looking to travel and hospitality. Um, as, as Paul said earlier in, in the earlier, uh, Paul Kane from On Location, we are constantly thinking about the experience from tip to tail, right? Mm -hmm. and, and if you can think about what a customer is trying to achieve or thinking about um, what they wanna do, hospitality, whether it's uh, entertainment, the theme parks, the uh, hotels, the Airbnb types of experiences, you, you're thinking about the full uh, journey. And, and for me, I think that we constantly think about how um, in our world where there's perishable goods, uh, that, right. you know, that, that plane leaves, you can't go resell that seat, that, you know, the curtain goes up, you can't resell that seat. Um, there's an urgency. And how do you unpack the urgency from the customer experience and, and, and how that ecosystem all works together? Uh, I, it's why I continue to look to that industry for inspiration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there's, uh, there's two that I'd point to. Um, certainly, you know, Amazon and Apple that you called out. I think logistics companies, uh, FedEx and 
um, and UPS have done a spectacular job of providing transparency, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. To the point that I expect that I can see the journey of my package anywhere, you know, anywhere in the world that it happens to be coming from. That's pretty incredible. Um, I think if you look inside, uh, inside of this industry, um, slightly different twist on the same question. I think what we're starting to see, um, particularly in, in media consumption of sports, TV consumption of sports, and the use of big data, uh, when, you know, when all of a sudden I can see what the hitting characteristics are of a particular batter in Major League Baseball, um, or I can see the speed that, are, that a, uh, their receiver accelerates at, or the chance, the likelihood that they're going to that they're going to uh, complete a, a particular pass. Um, I think that's the first exposure, one of the biggest exposures that sports fans have um, to to the power of big data. Right mm -hmm. when they can see it affecting mm -hmm. affecting uh, the way the game is played on 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 ice on court on on the field. I think you know consumers. If you ask, you know, typical customers outside of these rooms, uh, what they think about data and the availability of data and the access that we all have to their data, there's an immediate um, fear factor. But I think seeing the power that data can have in improving in, in experience or improving, in this case, a, a product on the field is actually really helpful. Yeah. Uh, and to the extent that we're able to use customer data in a really good way to, to better serve the customer, to better deliver experiences and products that they want, I think they're going to be very comfortable with the use of, of that data. And so I, I think actually sports is doing a really interesting job in changing the way we consume media around live events. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. We're, uh, we're 40 minutes in and we haven't touched on uh, privacy. So we probably <laughs> should. We'll take a, take a left turn and talk about uh, data privacy and, uh, and ethics. And we'll talk about two sides of the coin, right? Both the, the risk and how do you mitigate and manage the downside, but also, you know, candidly, if you do well, how you unlock the uh, upside and maybe even make it a, a source of competitive advantage. Um, and as you all know, the California Consumer Privacy Act um, goes into effect this year, um, and you know we'll have real implications for how consumer uh, how companies respond Already to has. that. Already has. So. Already has. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I'm going to go reverse order. Actually, yeah, uh, Kat, you want to talk yeah. about how you guys are uh, responding to it? No, I mean I think uh, I think um, the the space around live events, sports, entertainment. It, it is an interesting one when it comes mm -hmm. to uh, consumer privacy. Um, there, there's, there's two sides to it. One, as, as a marketer, I have an incredible responsibility to ensure that customers get value with every communication I send them. And if that's not the case, and it should be consumer value, not you know, my commercial agenda, um, it, if, if I can do that, there's very little reason, as we've discussed, for them to go anywhere, right? Because it's, it's value to them uh, all across that journey. So I think that, that it, it only raises the consideration of the obligations that marketers have back to their consumers. I'd say, secondly, um, as we think about how that landscape continues to evolve, we've been very... Um, happily surprised. We, we went out and, and surveyed a, a number of fans. We know that fans at the very end of the day from Ticketmaster, the one thing they want is access, right? Access to the right tickets at the right fan-friendly mm -hmm. price. Mm -hmm. um, and what they came back and shared with us is the, a pretty incredible list of things that they would be willing to share with us if we could ensure that they, they got access. Yeah. Um, things like they're passport or their blood type or their social security information, none of which we actually collect so everyone is fundamentally clear. Guessing but you're not using that. We're not either. using that, yeah. 
strict definitions of PI, but, <laughs> but I think for us, it is about ensuring that the ethics that we hold, mm -hmm. we hold them at a higher level than even some of the regulations because ultimately that's what earns us the right to have a long-term relationship with that's our right, fans. Yeah. How, how do you, you talked about access, how do you explore um, and figure out where that give-get line is, right? Mm -hmm. If you give you know, consumers and fans uh, value in return, they're actually willing to share and give you a lot, right? Absolutely, I think, I think if you look at some of the uh, more recent innovation at Ticketmaster, you take something like a verified fan, mm -hmm. right? Which was a direct response to consumer need. I wanna tell you that I wanna go to an event and I want to take time out of the equation because if you actually think about a 10 a.m. on sale, um, and I'll use concerts for example, 10 a.m. on sale for Adele, speed used to matter more. Right. And, and now it really is about identity. I am a huge fan because I have got this many radio spins and, I, and I've you know, viewed all these clips on YouTube. That should differentiate me from a bot who has no history with, mm -hmm. with the the content owner, start to think about how you provide that value, not only to the consumer, but also back to the content holder themselves. Right. Being able to say, hey, you have all of this demand in these markets. That's a huge unlock. And so data provides value to the ecosystem, not just one side or the other. Yeah. Matt, how does Fanatics think about it? Well, I think, you know, we, we're global, so we've had yeah. GDPR to practice on for yes. a while, uh, which is great. I think what, you know, what one of the uncomfortable things for uh, a company like us uh, that GDPR and, and, um, and the California uh, law have done is they've made data uh, and customer data a two-way street. We used to have, um, we used to have uh, almost, you know, complete control over, over what we did with data, which put a lot of responsibility on us, mm -hmm. um, but ultimately the consumer didn't have a lot of power. Now they have the power with uh, right to forget clauses and a bunch of other stuff, yeah. which just makes your, your, the management of data very cumbersome, and it, it, it creates a certain amount of um, uh, discomfort inside of, inside of the company. I think what it does is, uh, is, it, is it forces us to be even more specific about um, how we want to use data, and I think in that case, they're, they're two really different extremes. Um, you know, if I think personally, um, I want my grocery store to understand what my purchasing patterns are so that they're more likely to put the right product on the shelf for me. Um, I want my bank to be very, very specific with my information, and I don't yeah. want it, them to share it with anybody else, right? And so I think if, if you think about um, either implicit or explicit right. preferences that the customer has, if you're using it for good to serve them better. I think mm -hmm. they're highly tolerant of giving you a lot of information mm -hmm. if they believe that there's, that there's a payoff for them. You yep. either get a, get a better selection of product, you get better access to, uh, to events. I think if there's, if there's something that you're going to do that just simply treats their data as an asset that you're gonna monetize, um, there's, a, there's a pretty strong snap back against yeah. it. Yeah, and the philosophy we use is actually one that our bare minimum needs to meet the most stringent mm. standards of our top client, right? Mm -hmm. Or not that they're all of our clients, but the highest order. And that's, it's a privilege for us to act on their behalf to reach their consumer, right? At the end of the day, we're working with them and we're a medium or a vehicle to get there. So we must treat them with with the most utmost respect, and we go through extensive training practices with whatever clients. You know, Microsoft is a great example where they they have a very stringent privacy and security protocol that 
all partners must go through um, if you're working with them. And that's fine. Our entire team will go through it. My team's aware of the restrictions. And we make sure that we're employing that at all times. And that kind of goes on down the line. So we want to have the most holistic view, but it really needs to be in line with, again, the very tightest of um, whichever of our clients it is. I'm going to go to one of the, uh, one of the audience questions. So the um, uh, question is, um, how do you respond to the criticism that data analytics takes the fun out of sports or out of the entertaining experience? I take offense to that. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 wear, I wear my, my nerd badge not be fun? very proudly. Um, no, I mean, I think, I think at the end of the day, winning is fun. I got to tell you, like winning is fun. And, and the more you can allow your, your internal teams to have an informed base, fact base to work from, um, trusting your gut is dangerous, right? Like you, you lead to more failure than not. And so I think that for, for us, that's, there's a lot of fun in it. I, I, I've got nothing else to say on that. <laughs> I know. I, I, you know, I think we, we, think of, we tend to think about the fan in, in a very human term. And, um, you know, and, and every year in every sport, uh, most of the teams, all but one, go home losing their last game. And, uh, and so, and, and, and we all have a lot of passion, a lot of love for the teams that we follow. And, 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 and that love, you know, the, the great love that you have and the joy that you feel when you win, it, it only feels better because of the heartbreak that you feel yeah. when they lose. And I'm a lifelong Cubs fan, so I've had a lot of those moments. <laughs> um, My husband's a Bears fan. Well, there you go. So, so and, if, and I think if we use analytics to celebrate both ends of those, of those human emotions and you use it not just... Um, to weaponize your, your, your commercial plan, but you use it actually to connect with people in a genuine way. And that's a long, it's a long journey and you, ne you never get all the way there. But I think you could actually use this, this work to, to inject a, a bit of humanity in what yeah. we do. Yeah, yeah. you know, one, one thing I find really interesting, and I, I don't know if I take offense to it, but I, I have some counterpoints <laughs> to it. What's so interesting is we recently did some research about the statistics that are now available, especially during the game. So whether it's you know AWS, Statcast, or other things that might go up as part of a profile when you know Steph's made his last seven threes from you know one foot off the half court line, whatever it might be, is actually fans talk about the art of the game mm -hmm. and actually, in a way, we're seeing in some of the qualitative data that's coming back is they start to fall in love with the game itself too. And it starts, that, that athlete may transcend it, but they're talking about facets of the game. And we work on big brands that actually, you know, you're, you're looking at kids now actually talking about the arc of a ball or the length of a golf shot and the trajectory with which it left the tee. And they weren't having those conversations at 13 years old several years ago. But that's how they're talking to their friends about it. And they care about it. And they want to learn how to do it. And they want to think about how fast that pitch crossed home plate, whatever that might be. It's super interesting in adding a whole new level to us understanding the game. But just in growing this next generation of fans, I think watching how that will play out and the love for the sport and the game and the athlete, um, I think will only grow. And, and that's my perspective and what we're hearing from 
you know, some kids who are talking about it and work we're doing. So um, I think it's pretty fantastic. The, I have a, a nine-year-old twins and my son Max is a sports fanatic, but it's fascinating to see the way he engages with the sport and he talks to Alexa 10 times a day and asks like <laughs> the most random <laughs> trivia right. questions, but that was, that's my, not my default, but it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll go to another uh, audience question. So as data becomes, um, Actually, no, sorry, this, I, let me go to the other one. Um, how are you striking the balance between the visionary and the seemingly smaller innovations at your organizations? Or maybe said differently, you know, how do you think about the you know, quick wins here and now that you know are going to deliver versus you know, big bets that, frankly, are a little bit higher beta? As, as I said before, we have a, we have a balance of, of uh, small, very achievable growth initiatives um, uh, that, are, that are very tactical. And, uh, I mean, you just use a simple use case of an email, and we all get emails on our phone and, um, you know, from big companies like Ticketmaster and, and Fanatics. And if you look at that email, you know, what you're really seeing is a, is a flat file. If you were to able to look at that email sideways, what you would see is nine or ten layers of yeah. content, each of which is driven by an algorithm or some sort of a business mm -hmm. rule. Optimizing those business rules, that content, mm -hmm. um, those algorithms um, is, is a very, in, in an A-B-tested yeah. way, is a very practical um, uh, solution to drive growth for us in the short term. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, we know that there are additional communication channels that are becoming addressable uh, to personalization, figuring out how to cross those longer bridges mm -hmm. to drive the same levels of personalization into some of those other channels like social or you know, browser notifications or, or uh, mobile notifications uh, is, is more of a roof shot. Yep. Right? And that'll take us a couple of years to do. The, the example that we would use from a couple of years ago was paid social advertising, which, was, which is where marketing dollars used to go to die. And now because of years of, of refinement, uh, it, it's actually very it's productive for us. Now, right? yeah. And so yeah. I, I think you, you just have to balance a portfolio of, of yeah. projects. Yeah. One, you know, one of, the, um, one of the failure modes that we see over and over again is, um, is getting to scale, right? Every company has sort of entered the data and analytics arms race, but very few are truly getting to, to scaled impact. Um, and, you know, we've done some research that suggests um, only 40% of companies are actually returning their cost of capital on digital and analytics investments. Um, and when you look at the ones that are, you know, punching above their weight, um, you know, it tends to be 50% data, 50% algorithm, and, um, and, and or, sorry, 25% data, 25% algorithms, and 50% change management. And it's mm -hmm. that last part that is mm -hmm. sort of systematically um, underinvested in. So I'd love to hear from, um, uh, from all of you. Maybe, Kat, we'll yeah, start with sure. you. Where are you on that journey, and how are you getting out of this sort of pilot purgatory? Yeah, I, I, pilot purgatory is is a huge risk, I think, in, in digital transformation. I, I have, I've spent the last 15 years between turnarounds and startups and high growth, um, and, and Ticketmaster is in, uh, in the same very transformation, which is, I think, culturally, um, especially with a lot of the amazing team we've been able to staff up, we have a, um, we have a passion for change. Um, one of the constants at Ticketmaster is change. Um, and so for a marketer as well, you've got the change that's happening in your business. You also have the change that of strategies where you're taking your business. And right now, the marketing landscape and the consumer landscape is also moving really, really quickly. Yeah. I think the way that we've been able to release ourselves from purgatory it's just a, a high sense of pragmatism. We're there to drive outcomes. Right. We're there with a perishable good. And on behalf of our clients and our fans, we have a responsibility to stay pragmatic to the here and now 
while also knowing that we've got, you know, a, a, a marathon to run and we know what mile marker one looks like, what mile marker two looks like, so we can keep teams on the path and keep our pragmatism going in the right direction. That's right. That's right. For us, it really shows up in the decision to build or buy and to figure out what, you know, we employ, I don't know, dozens of best in class partners who are absolute experts at their craft and in their space and their data set and in their access to it. And we will work with them, partner with them, bring them in. And in some cases, we build proprietary tools and capabilities in that access ourselves. And for us, the value comes in the marriage of the two. But we aren't going to and we have to have big conversations on this, build something that we really should just be buying from an expert because that's not our lane to play in. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves of that. We get pretty excited, like, oh, we could do this. We're like, yeah, but there's four other companies out there that do every day, and we only need it for this one thing that we're doing. Yeah. And it's just that, that reminder of what are we trying to do in the end, what's the next question we're trying to answer, and the value we're trying to deliver so that we can communicate to the organization Here's where, we'll, here's where we'll buy and here's what we'll build and then manage the return from there. The only other thing I would say on top of that is you do have to be a bit comfortable building and flying at the same time okay. um, so that you're building your proof yeah. case that's leading to the ultimate ROI. So, and that's all part of the, the change management throughout is that constant communication, being clear on who we are, and then being a little bit comfortable with a smidge of risk. Yeah, I think that's well said. It's not a bad thing to draft off of someone else's capital investments and mistakes, right? It's well, expensive being on the bleeding edge. Um, I'll go back to an audience question. So um, what advice uh, would you have for recent grads who study data analytics trying to get their foot in the door of your respective organizations? <laughs> you, you do it in something that you're passionate about. I think this is the one nice thing, you know, I think years ago that was flying around that was data is the new oil, right? And and the algorithms are what bring it to life and bring it to market and kind of you know, keep the cars running. But if you can actually build these skills and understand how to deliver value to a business, it's pretty amazing to do it in sports and entertainment. It was pretty amazing to do it in consumer goods. And Kelly and I talked a lot about retail earlier. And it's really fun to be able to slice and dice and understand a business and value you could bring to a consumer in a different way. But it's so fundamental that you should dream big and you should think about the avenues that you could really explore um, just knowing you have these skills that are gonna be in demand, frankly, across every industry. So why not pick the one you care most about? That's yeah. my advice. My, my add to that would be, uh, we probably, many of us in this room may be data nerds. We have a little bit of nerd in us and, uh, and it's easy to, uh, to get lost in that sometimes. Um, tying, <laughs> tying the product of your work uh, back to the outcome of the business and being very focused on understanding the dynamics of the business and then applying your skill set to that dynamic, um, I think is, uh, is something businesses are really looking for. Yeah, I, I, would, I would add on top of that, you, it's important that you follow your passion, but you also follow what's important to the business. Mm -hmm. um, because if you can stay curious and not be constrained by, well, my box says my job is this, um, it will do incredible things for the amount of context you get about a business, the amount of impact you can drive for the business, and, and really um, the satisfaction that you have as you ground yourself to the impact that you're having bigger than what you and your team have just delivered because it's really changing mm -hmm. something much bigger. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so in, uh, in closing, so we've talked a lot about just the, the pace of change today. Uh, and one thing that is true is the pace of change will never be as slow as it is today, right? It's just gonna get, <laughs> it's just gonna get worse, right? <laughs> uh, which is actually quite exciting and exhilarating. But as you all look to, uh, to the future, um, just you know, sort of rapid, uh, rapid fashion, um, what are some of the biggest challenges you anticipate and what are you most excited about? Maybe we'll go in reverse order. Okay, challenge is focus, right? There, our eyes are always gonna be bigger than our stomachs. There's gonna be more that we can do. So I'd say that's the biggest challenge. What are you most excited about? I'm just most excited about, for me, um, it's, it's a marketer's pipe dream to have as much data as yeah. we have. <laughs> so I'm excited for what's coming next. Matt. I think understanding the context of the customer uh, is really challenging. So mm -hmm. did, you buy, did you buy a particular product because uh, it's because of its fashion orientation, because there's somebody around you who has a connection to them, or because you feel close to the team. Yeah. And I think if we can understand the context of the, of the, of the transaction, um, th that's, that's the next holy grail for us. Yeah, and I'm most excited about really being able to measure success end to end. I think bringing that to life and really being able to say, you know what, in the world of partnerships and sponsorships, I can stand alongside those that are buying media, spending money on innovation and so on and say, I can measure this the same way you can and demonstrate the value of what can be brought to a consumer and how brands can show up in new ways. And we've never had that perfect view end to end and it feels like it's right for the taking um, right around the corner. So thank you exciting. all for sharing your perspectives today. Super Thanks. helpful. Yeah. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.